Hello, and welcome to the Cannabis Corner. I am your host, Joshua Braff, and I'm here with my partner, farmer Adam Teitelbaum. Today we are discussing the incarceration of nonviolent cannabis-related crimes in the New Real, where there are articles every single day on the benefits and also misunderstandings of cannabis. And now, of course, with all the more and more legal states benefiting in various ways, including from taxes, there's a sense that reefer madness and such propaganda was, of course, a farce. And the New Real allows for all kinds of language and discussion about what could be best for people who are ill or from migraines to diseases that are quite vast and fatal. Today we have Stephanie Landa, who has a charity called Let Freedom Grow. We want to talk to you, Stephanie, about what you're doing uh, as far as those that are incarcerated and how you are thinking about them and helping them. After spending time in prison yourself, you've worked tirelessly to be kind in multiple ways to people just like yourself who got caught up on the wrong side of the law when it came to cannabis. Stephanie, tell us your story in any way you can from the beginning and let us know what Let Freedom Grow is all about so that we can share it with our listeners and they can also find out how to be in touch with you and to help with your charity. Welcome to the Cannabis Corner, Stephanie Landa. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it because this is like a dirty little secret that people don't bring out. Everyone thinks that people don't go to jail for pot, which is totally ridiculous because every day people are getting busted for pot. And federally, they've never lost a case. So if you get busted by the feds, you're done, you're going to prison, you might as well take a deal. And that's really, really sad. I did five years in federal prison for cultivation. And it was in 2002, and I realized that when I was in jail, everyone really needed money, and they couldn't have anything, not a full-size toothbrush, not toothpaste, not laundry detergent to wash their clothes in. You're really stripped when you're in jail, and if you get life without parole for a nonviolent pot offense where there might be too much pot, of course, everyone can have their ounce unless someone has too much pot. But a lot of people go to jail for this. I take care of well over 100 people that my organization is actually Freedom Grow. My Instagram is Let Freedom Grow, but I see. my organization is freedomgrow.org. And we pump up the commissary of people that are in jail for pot. I started smoking pot in 1959. Absolutely. I thought it was going to be legal by now. I mean, come on, really? And we didn't know that it was going to be so medicinal and so many people are going to benefit. If I didn't take oil every day, I would die from cancer because I had stomach, spleen, and uh, liver cancer. And I did have radiation and I did have chemo, but I take oil every day and I took it then. And in the beginning, I took massive doses of oil, and I'm sure that's why I'm still alive. And now I take oil every day because if you do get another cell, it goes right to that cell and shrinks it. So I personally am alive because of that. And my son was making oil for me, and he gets out of jail in 20 days and a wake-up. He's been there for 20 months. 
That is a horrible truth. I did not know about your son. You've lived this life in which you found yourself imprisoned for something that was helping you in a great deal. In San Francisco, we got invited to come there and grow pot by the captain of the narcotics squad, Captain Cashman, the district attorney, Hallamand, and the 10 county supervisors in writing come to San Francisco, do this. So we moved to San Francisco and grew for the dispensaries. The cops came in, they say by mistake. They let us all go. They came in, ruined the grow, let us all go. And then they turned us over to the federal government, and we all got indicted. And then, of course, we took pleas so that we weren't going to do 10 years to life. We got to say everything at the plea. You know, we all got to speak, and we all got to say what we were going to say. And the paperwork came out, and the feds said, we don't care. One joint is illegal. We don't care what paperwork you have. In the federal government, it's illegal, period. And if you don't take the plea, we're going to give you 10 years to life. And so many people I know have 10 years to life. So it wasn't like an idle threat. And we got five years. It wasn't like they gave us nothing. But when I said to the judge, I said, well, where do you think that the pot comes from that's in San Francisco. You live here. And he said in the open courtroom, my government pays me to believe that it falls out of the sky. So that's what I believe. And there's not much you can say to that. Yeah, there's great apathy for the person on on the side of what they are calling the crime. It sounds like your lawyer at the time was unable to bring in the powers that be that led to the beginning of your impetus to come to California. No, I was in L.A. Actually, I was in Los Angeles and I moved to San Francisco. But it doesn't matter. Everyone in the courtroom knew the truth, even the judge. But one joint is illegal federally. I'm trying to tell everyone, pot is not legal. It's not Why legal. is it, Stephanie, why, why, Stephanie, this is Adam Teitelbaum here. Um, why is Hi. it that they decided to hand your case over to the feds? I, this is just not something that you hear of happening too often. The one of the sheriff's department was cross-deputized, which is really common. And so he's, he's half fed and half state. So he decided that he really didn't like this. And, you know, 2002 is still really early on the medical scene. And he turned us over to the feds. It's not unusual. Ed Rosenthal got turned over to the feds. There's a lot of people that got turned over in 2002. There were a lot of us that went down. Why do you think that was at that particular time that, that was happening in California. Even today, it's happening. Lance Kaur, who is in Washington State when it was totally legal, he had a dispensary, and he got 10 years by taking it to trial with the feds. The feds don't play. They've never lost a case. And pot is illegal federally. But the, so Second there's a proliferate of, of there's, there's dispensaries in in so many states right now. Why do you think that certain people are being singled out like that? I think that they only bust 10% of us. So no matter what, 90% of us get away with this. I feel, and I'm not sure, but I think the Sessions is going to come down on Colorado. I hate to say that, Adam, but... The reason I believe that is I don't think he's going to come down on California or the West Coast because we're the Ninth Circuit. 
they have a chance of losing in the Ninth Circuit. It's very liberal. But the Tenth Circuit, where Colorado is, there's no chance that Colorado can win. There's just no chance. They're not going to let them win. Right now, you know, Colorado has already said that they will not play ball with the Fed. San Francisco gave it to me in writing that they would not cooperate with the federal government, and they turned me in. Okay, so, yeah, so they can just come they in lie. Where, where, wherever, they, wherever lie. they want. I really hope we don't they see lie. this trend happen. And it seems to me, uh, living in Colorado um, for for quite some time now, more than half my life, um, that most of these busts and the big cases happen more in California. We've only had a couple here that are even anything similar to to the types well, of things that you're you're talking about. Otherwise, it's been like people with huge illegal growths where they're just blowing up houses and there's nothing but you know pot plants living there and no people. Those I get, but people have been doing it legitimately. We really have not been having that happen here unless there's ties to organized crime. Well, maybe there's not as many snitches in Colorado as there are in California. All cases are from a snitch. There are no cases that are not stem from somebody that snitched on somebody. If you have a snitch in the case, it's really hard to get out of it. Really hard. You have to take some kind of a deal. On the good side, I did a commercial for Viceland. And on the good side, a lot of people are donating, and I'm taking care of a lot of prisoners in the last month. The awareness is really good because people are in jail for pot. And the people that are in jail for pot are constantly saying, I have no idea why I'm here. I've I've got a question for you, which is how did you deal with doing your five years in prison and not being able to use cannabis as your medication? For the first two years, I smoked hash every day, and it didn't smell at all. And then my... However, I got all this together together in prison, um, which is, there's only really one way to get it together. It's through the visiting room, but whatever. The next year, I asked somebody to bring me a joint. I said, oh, I just want one joint. I reeked like pot. Somebody turned me in, and I had to do an extra year, which I couldn't smoke pot because they tested me all the time. But the first two years, I smoked all the time. So you were able to medicate. So what did you do during that one year when you weren't able to? You know, if you don't have pot, you don't smoke. It's not like the end of the world. It's Did it affect like, you physically? Did you, you know, in a negative way, in a positive way, in any way? I was quite the activist in prison. So I taught classes in there and started a recycling program. That prison will never be the same again after I was there. I was very outspoken. I taught, Everyone knew that I loved pot. And they were ready for me to go home for sure. And, you know, I taught a class on Martin Luther King, Cesar Chavez, and Gandhi. And it was a class called Social Injustice. And the women in there were like, oh, we never thought of having our lives without violence. Like, we thought we could only solve our problems with violence. And so I affected a lot of people in a positive way, and I taught everyone how to grow. Every woman in there had a grow class because if you hang one light and you're a single mom and you're starving, you are going to make a little bit of money, and it's better than welfare. So it's an important thing to teach people how to take care of themselves. 
I think one of the things to discuss in in the in 2017 is that this began for you in '02. I remember when Adam and I got together in earnest to talk about what was happening. It was '08, and it was still full fully illegal in Colorado. So as we approach 2020. We are given the numbers of, uh, you know, billions in, in revenue. There should be some kind – and Stephanie, you seem like you'd be a frontrunner for this – maybe some kind of system that takes a – that relooks at cases of people who are incarcerated for nonviolent crimes. They're not selling um, fentanyl either. They had to grow, perhaps for themselves, perhaps for someone else. And yes, they got caught at a time where it was illegal by a, by a snitch with 90% of the people walking away gleefully. I remember in 2012 in Oakland, Oaksterdam University, I believe it was called, and on the local news, just like you, I to teach that. Just like you said, a single mom saying, I'm here, I'm going to learn this. This was pre-Uber. I'm going to take it on myself to, to make some cash for myself, and this stuff grows from dirt. Here we are, approaching 2020. So many people in the country are unafraid to say that they're using this medicinally. The positives are are almost a joke when it comes to severe diseases. A joke in the sense that you mean pot does this? You mean pot shrinks cysts and the like? So where's the team that says, hey, let's look at Billy's case one more time since Billy didn't have a crime before he started growing and he's sitting in a hole in 2017. What, what are your thoughts about that? Clemency, it's called CanDo.com. Amy Provo, she's really good. She got clemency from Clinton. She got 24 years, and she did nine, and it was for ecstasy. And Clinton gave her clemency. She's worked tirelessly to get other people out. It's a really long process. It's really hard and this year, Obama let four pot people out. Everyone else is meth and coke, which I think they should all get out. I don't really care what drug it is. Had you seen that Oregon is going towards decriminalizing all they drugs? They do. Right. So, they do. Yes, leave it to Oregon. So hopefully, hopefully that'll be a, a good model uh, like Portugal has been. Right. But still, 10% of us are going to jail for pot. We'll have more with our interview with Stephanie Landa in future episodes of The Cannabis Corner. Platinum Grinders, precision milled from ultra-strength aircraft-grade aluminum for extra toughness, durability, and best quality. Don't let the affordable price fool you. Sharp diamond cutting teeth, scratch-resistant, platinum warranty, and 100% no-hassle money-back guarantee. This is one of the best grinders made. Platinum Grinders. Hi, we're back on the Cannabis Corner. We are here with Jonathan Covert, a grower from Medicine Man in Denver, Colorado. And they've been doing some interesting things with breeding, and uh, we'd love to talk to Jonathan about the specifics. Adam's going to begin with a few questions. Yeah, sure. Well, Jonathan, you and I are both growers in the industry. I think you're the second grower we've had on. I'd actually like to ask you some questions about the current grow you're working for. How many plants are you guys growing there? Um, anywhere from 1,500 to 2,000 plants, depending on patients who are uh, signed up for our dispensary. Because it's uh, we grow strictly medicinal. We don't grow any um, recreational weed. We outsource our, our recreational, and any of the stuff that we personally grow is all medicinal. 
Ah, so on the dispensary on the storefront end, you sell recreationally and medically, but the grow only provides the medical side. Yes, sir. Uh, it's very interesting. That's actually very similar to my grow. I didn't know there were others that were doing that. Um, <laughs> and now you said that you guys are growing organically. What methods are you using? To be honest, I can't get too specific. I've signed a uh, privacy clause, so to speak. I can't give it any proprietary um, information as far as what we use, but everything is... No, that's understandable, but just like in general, what type of method without without divulging anything you shouldn't? Highly amended, all-organic cocoa and peat-based soil with ORMI-certified liquid feeds, as well as state-approved and ORMI-certified IPM products for any preventative maintenance for pests and or mildew. Great, great. That is great to hear uh, of a commercial operation working that way. What's what's the name of the dispensary? The dispensary is Life Flower Dispensary. Where is it located exactly? It's located right off of Leedsdale in uh, Denver, Colorado. Okay. Cool. I am going to need to check that place out the next time I'm in Denver. And you say you've been breeding for some years now. Can you tell us a little bit about breeding? Yeah, yeah. I, I kind of got into it, I guess, as a hobby, so to speak. I heard plenty of uh, horror stories about the overseas seed banks and vendors. Either, you know, you don't get what you pay for or you don't get what you pay for as far as strain-wise. It's something completely different or it just doesn't show up. And uh, I really didn't want to have to go through all that just to grow my own. And then uh, I really didn't know any breeders in the United States that were trustworthy enough for me to spend my money on at that time. I was too new here. So I was just like, you know what, I'll I'll find something that I can work with and go from there, kind of create something of my own. Where do you source the, you know, the parents for your plant, the males and the females? Right, right. I kind of got into the... The underground clone trading, I mean, you can go to dispensaries and stuff and get clones, but typically you have to be a medicinal patient, and at that time I didn't have that kind of qualifications. I was too new to Colorado, so I had to outsource clones, and I uh, I really fell in love with Rugburn from Rare Dankness. They were big at the time, and then uh, a very classic from the Sensi Seed Bank in Europe, I believe, is where they were at at the time. But the Critical Sensi Star, both were just, you know, very, very big to me as far as production and then oil and quality. So I kind of just started with those two. Which was the male and which was the female? The female was the Critical Sensi Star. The male was the Rug Burn OG. Did you grow that male, or did you get pollen from someone else who grew the male? No, I knew somebody who had pop seeds. Well, he offered me a cut, and I just went from there. I started out as, you know, just tinkering around, and then I really found some phenos that were just out of this world. I kind of shared it locally, and I guess word of mouth spread, and people started asking if they could buy seeds, and hadn't really considered that, but I mean, if somebody's offering to buy something from me, you don't necessarily, like, oh, no, I can't when I have bills to pay, (laughs) you know? So, um, can can you explain the breeding process, how that that works, how you go about it for our listeners? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's pretty simple in the fact that you source a male and a female, ones that have attributes that you're looking for. I mean, you can breed for all these other breeders. Can you explain for our listeners what you mean by by uh, attributes? What attributes you're you're looking for? Yeah, Josh? yeah. Str- 
structure, the male contributes just as much as the female as far as males um, have male flowers. You need to see how much male flowers are produced, you know, the density of the male flowers, the structure of the male, the vigor of the male, does the male have odor, are these things that you're looking for. And for the female, is the female stacking how you want, is the the yield of what you're looking for, is the oil production up to par versus, you know, you've got a plant that's just a fuzzball, all hairs and no crystals. When you're talking stacking, you're talking about the distance between nodes. Yes, yes, node separations. So so what Jonathan is talking about is having buds that are growing closer together rather than further apart, because further apart you're going to have a lot of space, and uh, you'd rather have a lot of bud in space. Right, right. uh, right. Go ahead, just because not everybody would understand that term. No, no, that's fine. And at the same time, there's a fine line between... Too much stacking. I mean, a plant that's too bushy is going to cause problems. You're going to get poor breathability in the plant itself. And, you know, it could lead to bud rot. And nobody wants that when they're six, seven weeks in going to harvest or even you're trimming up and, you know, you're breaking down your buds and all of a sudden you got big buds with a whole bunch of gray mold on the inside. It can bite you in the ass at the same time as. It can be beneficial. Sure, you're getting three pounds of plant, but you're having to throw away a bunch because the plant couldn't breathe well enough. So you really need some distance between the nodes, but for me personally, I don't like too much. Gotcha. So you have a male room and a female room, or how how do you do it? I do everything in, in one room. It gets cleaned down, sterilized, and then refilled, another male selected. I do not have the space or the facility to house multiple males. You know what I mean? I, this is right. something that I do as a hobby outside of my nine to five. Um, so when I find my male, I keep him in veg until I have my females lined up um, that I've chosen. And then I will flower him out with those females, pull him out about three weeks in, let him do his thing in a separate room, very low wind flow, so the pollen that drops, I can collect. Then I'll kill the male off, collect the pollen, sift all that out, and store it for future breedings. I've had pollen last upwards of two to three years um, when stored right, which is plenty of time for me to see what that male is all about. And When you say store it right, are you talking about a cool, dark place? Yes, yes. Um, I keep mine in scientific centrifuge files in a cool, dark, no-moisture area, like a the back of a cover, you know what I mean? Right. And then light can even kill off the viability of your pollen over time. Can you explain what you do with the pollen from the male plant to the female in order to produce seeds? Yeah, yeah. Side of letting them naturally do what they do, open pollination-wise... After I've collected pollen and I want to use the pollen for, say, a different breeding to where the male plant itself has already been cut down and he's not able to release pollen himself, I'll take select females, select branches, take my pollen, and either with a Q-tip, I'll dip it into the pollen because the Q-tips hold quite a bit inside the cotton. I'll kind of sprinkle that all over the branches that I want to pollinate, and I'll repeat that two, three, four days in a row. Um, At what stage of the female are you applying that pollen? 
me personally, I like to hit them in about three weeks. In three weeks of flower cycle, you like to take your your brush and uh, brush the pollen on the desired branches. But will you do that? Will you have like multiple strains in the room? No, I'll do multiple female strains to one specific male because I've I've hunted him. I've seen what he's about and what he has to pass on. That's great. That's good stuff. What would you say uh, your favorite strain you've bred is? Covert's OG. The only okay. strain I've put my last name on. <laughs> and um, what is that a cross of? That is a cross of Firestopper OG F3 to my Sensi Burn OG F3. I worked both of those strains to F3 status before I found the priced parent. That Can you just explain for our listeners real quick what you mean by F3? Yeah, yeah, uh, Fiali or Generation, it's the third generation of seeds. The original parents, parent one, parent two, you make seeds of those. Those seeds are then planted. You find a male and a female out of those. Their brother and sister, same strain, they have the attributes that you're looking for that you'd like to continue on, so you breed those two. So what those two produce are F2 seeds, second generations. You're going to have more and more of the same characteristics as each other because the gene pool is getting tighter and tighter. You know what I mean? Like there's there's right. less variance in the gene pool because they're you're breeding brother and sister, brother and sister, brother and sister to a point to where you have identical plants on the line, say F5s, F6s, almost IBL. IBL, any seed I pop should look exactly the same. That's great. That that is that is the way to do it. Have you bred these? Would you say for medicine? Or are they you know recreational? Is it a combination? No, to, to be honest, since I started out completely recreational, I didn't have any you know medical cards or anything like that. I was breeding plants to get high. Like it was purely recreational. Now that I've been in the medical industry, as far as work wise. I've seen how much it actually helps people. I've started delving into the CBD-only strains and then the CBD hybrid strains. That way I can give people more than just something to get high on, something that they can get relief from. What CBD strains are you currently working with? I really enjoy the CBD GOG from Lapata Labs. And then Bodhi has CBD Rich Blessings, I believe is what it is. It's an ACDC cross. It's really good on the medicinal side. Do you have anything else that might be of interest to share? Something maybe innovative that you're doing with growing or that you've done with breeding or something that's special you guys are growing over at the grow? We just did a pretty large in-house breeding using a cluster bomb male. We hit a lot of our classic strains, Cole Creek, Kush, Tahoe OG, Tang Haze, just a whole bunch of the basics that most dispensaries have. We hit those with a more hybridized, you know, something that not everybody has from archived seeds. It's a nice Bubba Kush face-off OG BX2 strain that they put out. It's really a winner. I really think people are going to enjoy it. They're not selling seeds of it. It's something that it's strictly locals-only kind of deal. If you know that we have this on the shelf, you know where to get it type. And we're slowly bringing those out. We want to have something that nobody else has. And to do that nowadays, you really need to be doing your own breedings in-house. I mean, yeah, you got to start with the foundational strains, but somewhere in there you got to mix it up, see what you get, and chances are you're going to hit a home run. How many strains does your facility grow that you work at? 
when I started there, they had upwards of 75 strains in their collection. A lot. Yeah. And they've since kicked out probably half of those strains due to the simple fact that they wanted to start creating something of their own that they could be identified for. Do you have an actual breeding facility at the Grow? Yeah, they have a breeding room that's all set up, filterized and everything like that. So they can work their magic, so to speak. I don't do any of the breedings for them. That's all something that they've kind of started just before I got on board with them. But I'm able to help out where they need it, if they need it. They seem to be doing a pretty good job themselves. Interesting stuff. Well, hey, Jonathan Covert, thank you very much for joining us today on the Cannabis Corner. We appreciate you being with us and sharing your knowledge with us today. Thank you, Jonathan. I really appreciate you having me on. Thanks so much for being with us. We are going to see you next time on the Cannabis Corner.